Hello, Bill. Good morning, Matt. Welcome to the DMZ, everybody. Uh, January 26th. Uh, and the big news in my household, Matt, is that we finished season one of White Lotus. Uh, I know you finished season one of White Lotus. You, you, you finished both seasons, actually, right? You, you blew through season yep. two. Yeah, I just uh, finished so I season talk, two. I can't talk season two yet. We'd start it, but okay. I'm only uh, uh, for two or three episodes in. Um, but uh, you you thought that season one had a conservative message, right? I think so, yes. Yes. And by the way, let me say, I liked season one better than season two. Season two is good, I, but season, I like season one better. But uh, yes, I think season one... That's not, that's, not, that's not conventional wisdom, right? Well, I, I thought that I was going against the grain. And then when I tweeted that opinion out and I got a million people saying, uh, A, I agree with you. And B, why are you... Like, everyone knows this. So <laughs> I, thought it, I thought it was conventional wisdom, but I guess hmm. not. I may feel like this show only got... Got on my radar because everyone was raving about season two. I didn't even realize it was a season one until I, yeah, you know, looked into it. So season one, in my opinion, um, is the themes are about like wealth and class and race, and there's a in my opinion, a political commentary on that. Whereas season two is more about uh, sex and sex work, um, mm -hmm. and so. I just felt that one was was better for a variety of reasons, but including I thought that the political commentary was um, a little a little bit sharper and more relevant, at least to me. Yeah, but I don't. I mean, they're definitely mocking uh, hypocrisy amongst wealthy liberals, um, but I didn't think that it, that equates with being conservative. Yeah. Well, I mean, again, as I said last week, some of it may be a Rorschach test. Someone else might watch this episode and say, see it differently. Um, I think and I'm not and I'm not suggesting that this is like, you know, William F. Buckley wrote this or something. Like right. Right. But for an HBO show, I felt like the themes, some of the political themes of it made points that um and this day and age, and in, in the context of this day and age, where Bill Maher is, is basically a conservative, right? Um, that it that it stressed those kind of themes. I felt like the the young people who were um, who were sort of woke uh, were portrayed as being spoiled and out of touch, and in fact, kind of villainous. And the um, the adults who were kind of old school liberals who thought that political correctness and had run amok um, were portrayed as, uh, as, as more, more right, but still flawed. It's a complex, it's a complex nuanced view, but more right. Mm -hmm. But you know, there are other, that's just one of the, um, of kind of the many themes I think of, of the show. Um, you know, I, 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 I'm probably not the best person to comment on this is just that I don't, I don't, Take enough pop culture these days, so forgive me for you know going out of my my, my comfort zone. Um, but my general sense of where things are going, you know, we definitely have you know a huge shift amongst younger people politically and culturally, um, and so you get uh, 
a lot more emphasis on uh, race, class, gender, uh, and in a lot of pop culture these days. And so I think White Lotus is sort of a classic example of, of that. You know, all those things are kind of you know coming together uh, and cr- and creating a lot of the conflict in in the story. Um, I don't think it was attempting to dump on the general progressive direction of culture, but it was, you know, incorporating uh, that some people mouth these things without really believing it or understanding it, its full implications or whatnot. Um, uh, Yeah. I mean, the easy thing to do... The easy thing to do, and it does, I think, I mean, obviously it's a commentary on how rich people are like sometimes out of touch, sometimes spoiled. Um, by the way, one of the themes that I thought was really interesting, and this carries over, I think, into season two, is the employees, the people who work at this fancy resort, they've got lives and struggles, and it shows that side of it. Mm-hmm. And some of them uh, have problems and addictions, and you can see these kind of rich people coming up, constantly pestering them uh, would inflame sometimes uh, their addictions and, and their, their per- impact their personal lives. And, and as someone who has worked in the service industry in my past, um, I can identify with that. And, and that is something, you know, we've seen with like Downton Abbey, they have like, you know, the rich people and then you've got the servant class mm-hmm. and that's, kind of the first show that I remember seeing that really showed both sides of it like that. Um, but I think White Lotus takes it to another level mm. and shows how, you know, taking, being someone who works at a resort where you always have to be smiling, always have to be happy, always have to be solving problems for rich people. Like that takes a toll on your, on your life. Mm. Um, and that is something that I had not really seen portrayed that much. So I thought that was another uh, another good thing. Yeah, well, I, I, I don't think it's the first show to explore class division. It's not the first show to explore uh, racial tensions. It's not the first show to explore hypocrisy uh, amongst the wealthy, um, liberal, liberal or otherwise. I mean, I, I actually I didn't see it, but I understand Get Out was very much a mockery of you know, the superficial yes. white, white. By liberal. the way, I highly recommend Get Out. Very good movie. Mm-hmm. Um, Liked it a lot. So. Uh, so I don't think this is all that new. I mean, the way things come together and the complexity and the confluence of all these themes, you know, uh, might have unique elements to it. Uh, but I guess what I'm trying to get at is I wonder if culturally we are tracking how we are moving politically, which I think is at the same time, still kind of moving in a progressive direction in a lot of ways, but with elements of backlash to it. You know, I mean, the squad is not riding high right now. Um, and there's there's more exploration of, uh, of excess and what was being pushed, you know, in the two Bernie Sanders campaigns, for example. There's more space for that uh, in the discourse. Um, so, uh, 
and then and, and those kind of complexities and tensions make for great art you know um, yeah i mean it, it would have been easy it would have been easy for them to just make the show where the rich people are out of touch and they mm -hmm. did that but then they had this undercurrent where the rich people by virtue of being so privileged had these this spoiled these kind of spoiled kids um, who don't appreciate the hard work that the rich people did to get where they are. And I would argue that the most sort of villainous act portrayed in, in the whole show and season one is perpetrated by virtue of uh, someone who embraces this kind of victim woke ideology. And that is what sets off what I would believe to be the most villainous act perpetrated in season one. So... Um, one other thing I would say, which is not really about you know politics, more about parenting, because I there's a little there's a little snippet at the end of season one where Mike White you know talks about the themes of the show, and you know uh, I love Mike White from School of Rock. Um, you know he was uh, he was Jack Black's friend in School of Rock, and I, I believe he, I believe he wrote uh, did he write and direct? No, he didn't direct. He th I think he wrote the script, or at least co-wrote the script. Um, uh, at School Rock's one of, one of my favorites. Uh, anyway, he talked about um, uh, the tension between wanting your kids to get off of screens, but then what do they? But then what do they do when they're off the screens? <laughs> totally. Yeah. Oh, better. Um, and without getting giving away, you know, the plot of the ending of of, of season one, like how that storyline played out, you know, sort of. It spoke to me as a parent, as a kid, um, yeah. because I definitely, as a teen, like just you know, want to get out and like felt constrained by you know, so the tail end of adolescence, like like you're ready to get out, but you can't get out quite yet. <laughs> you know that tension, like I definitely that, that definitely spoke to me. Dude, and as a parent, I've got a twelve, I've got a twelve year old and a ten year old. Man, <laughs> it's tough. I I, I feel yeah. your pain. I know. And, and, and now right it's now, funny, like, as, a, as a consumer of entertainment, I am, I'm interpreting everything differently as a father, mm -hmm. as opposed to being not a father or a father of like a tweens. Um, I'm interpreting like when I watch those shows now, instead of me seeing myself as like the kid with the annoying parents, I see myself mm -hmm. as the dad, you know, right, that show. Right. <laughs> and it's a different perspective. It totally is a different perspective. Well, the thing that I see totally differently now that as a kid is Calvin and Hobbes. Like you read Calvin and Hobbes as an adult, and like it hits you so differently than when you read it as a kid. Um, and it, which, which is uh, Calvin Hobbes is one of the greatest works of art, in, period, in my, in my opinion. It, it, it holds up so well, and it's totally timeless. But anyway, we're probably going down way too many tracks. Oh, okay. <laughs> on, on a different note, before we move to politics, I also want to put a plug in. Uh, I just finished season one of The Bear. Have you have you heard of this on Hulu? I've heard a little bit about it, but I don't know much about it. So it's about a, a guy who's like a, a Michelin star chef um, who his brother dies um, sort of like of an overdose or something unexpectedly. And so he moves back to run this little kind of dive restaurant that his brother uh, owns in Chicago. And it's, 
you know, it's got all sorts of kind of urban problems as, you know, as well as financial issues um, in Chicago. And so um, that is worth checking out. One season is all that there is of, of now, but when you're done, uh, White Lotus season two, Bill, think about did, that one. I, your next I, I did watch the first two episodes of the new Night Court. Uh, and I think the first two of that 90s show, I didn't manage to work those mm. in my busy schedule. Uh, both, thumbs up or both, thumbs down? Uh, uh, both underwhelmed, but I was expecting to be underwhelmed. Uh, I mean, I mean, if you're a hardcore fan, like you can watch them. They're, they're, you can, they're, they're not completely, you know, without merit, but neither one is me is meeting the level of quality of their, of their predecessors. Um, does night does the new night court still have the original theme? They uh, in a modified version. Okay, modified and shortened. Um, but uh, yeah, it, you know my basic view of any TV or movie is you have good characters, nothing else matters. You could have like, the lamest plot lines, formulaic trash. If they're good, good sharply defined characters, like you, you care about what happens to them, and the rest doesn't matter. Uh, and uh, I don't think Night Court, has, the new Night Court, has hit it with the collection of characters. Uh, you know, you both like the the main, you know, the judge, the DA, the bailiff, the clerk. Like they're not meeting the level of what they were before, and the people that come in the court, you know, the, the, the defendants that come in, you know, are quite re reached that, that level of craziness uh, from before. Um, and that, and that 90 show, the kids are not gelling the way the original group of kids did. So it's nice to see, you know, red and kitty still around and the cameos are fun. Uh, like the kids are, they're fine. Like it's not like it's terrible. <laughs> um, but, and, the, but, and the, these things are obviously harder to execute than they, they look from the outside, but that, that's where it feels underwhelming to me. And on that happy note, where do you want to talk? Uh, where do you want to go? What do you want to talk about? Um, we just talked about it before, before we got on the air, and now, now I forget. What was the thing that you just wrote about? Um, well, one idea I had, I've not written about this yet, um, but one thing I wanted to note is that uh, Pat Buchanan has retired right, his column. Right, that was it. That was it. Yes. It. And um, I think it deserves some talk. Because I think Pat Buchanan is a dramatically underrated, nowadays at least, probably underappreciated political figure. And this is a guy, I thought about it. If you go back to the last, every elected president of my lifetime, Pat Buchanan had, I'm sorry, every elected Republican president of my lifetime, Pat Buchanan played a major role in some capacity, right? So he works for Richard Nixon, famously advises Richard Nixon. I think that's when he came up with the um, silent majority line. I believe that's Pat, uh, or at least he popularized it. He works for Nixon as his, I think, political director or communications director, sort of a senior advisory role. He runs against George H.W. Bush in New Hampshire and potentially hobbles him and then gives that 92 speech, which potentially hobbles, <laughs> hobbles Bush, right? 
Then he inadvertently. What, 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 do you, what do you do? What do you do for Reagan? He was, um, I think, his communications director. Mm-hmm. So then he inadvertently gets George W. Bush elected. <laughs> I don't remember because mm-hmm. a lot of people, you know, thousands of people accidentally voted for for Pat Buchanan. Right. Um, right. And then I think you could argue he paves the way for for Donald Trump in a sense um, that uh, that Pat Buchanan's kind of America first nationalism, populism finally arrives with Donald Trump. So that's the last five elected. I don't count Jerry Ford in there because he wasn't elected, but the last five elected Republican presidents, I believe all of them of my lifetime, Pat Buchanan played a, a, a significant role in. But that doesn't even count the fact that he was at the top of his game at our game, Bill. This is a guy who was a columnist and a top political commentator back in the days when there weren't that many. You know, there were only a couple of channels. This is a guy who was on Crossfire for years. He was on the McLaughlin Group back when it was so important that even Saturday Night Live was doing skits about it. It's a guy at the top of his game. Um, I can tell you one of the nicest people that you'll ever meet, um, one of the kindest, nicest people. I think he's a happy warrior on air when he talks, even if he's saying hardcore things, he's saying I'm sort of in a smile with a sort of a genteel, uh, happy warrior way. But in person, one of the nicest people I've met in this entire business, and not just to people like me, but you, you ask, uh, makeup artists, U.S. drivers. Who's the nicest person to you? It's Pat Buchanan. I've heard it so many times, Bill. And then, of course, the last thing I would say that we have to think about with Pat Buchanan, well, I didn't even mention the fact that he's also a book author and has written like what, like maybe a dozen books. I think that's where he got into a lot of his trouble in terms of allegations of, of racism or anti-Semitism. And I don't think you can dismiss these out of hand, even if you're a conservative. I mean, he has been criticized by Bill Buckley for being an anti-Semite and by Donald Trump for Donald Trump called him a racist or something like that in In 2000. Right. So one, you know, I, I, I hope and expect he will live many, many years. But I just wanted to take this opportunity as he retires his column. I think this is a guy who is incredibly significant, who probably um, young people today do not fully appreciate uh, the life and the career that he had. Um, So I just finished reading uh, Richard Nixon, The The Life by John Frow, which is excellent. Um, So uh, uh, if you don't think Nixon's interesting copy, like that's just wrong. Like this is really just an incredible story of, uh, of a person's life uh, as horrible as it may have been in the, in the net of it all. Um, Mistakes were made, one, Bill. <laughs> uh, so at one point, because you know, Nixon uh, was not all that much of an ideologue uh, and that upset Buchanan. At one point, Buchanan composed a long memo to Haldeman entitled Neither Fish Nor Fowl, describing with alarm Nixon's image as a, quote, political transient, unquote, who governed like the, quote, bubble in the carpenter's level, unquote. But we suffer from the widely held belief <laughs> that the president has no grand vision that inspires him, no deeply held political philosophy that girds, guides, and explains his words 
decisions and deeds. For better, um, the president is viewed uh, as the quintessential political pragmatist standing before an ideological buffet, picking some from this tray and from that, uh, which, you know, served Nixon quite well. I mean, he won, you know, he won re-election in a landslide against what was seen as an ideologue, but that definitely rankled uh, Buchanan. Uh, Who was, but, by the uh, way, I will say about Pat Buchanan, he was a conviction politician mm-hmm. when he ran. And he had been a free marketer, but he became an economic nationalist. He was an isolationist after the collapse of the Soviet Union. Um, But he was a conviction politician. And um, you might not like his convictions, but he he had them. He has them. That's that's unmistakably true. (laughs) I I mean, there's there's only just two... There's two questions like to ask about assessing Buchanan's legacy. You know, one is just was he a was he a force for good or for bad? I mean, as you point out, even some prominent conservatives, I mean, Buckley had an exhaust. I mean, they did get the whole issue. It's like, is Pat Buchanan anti-Semite? And his answer was yes. So, well, um, I think his answer true. was, uh, I don't think Pat is an anti-Semite, but he says and does anti-Semitic things. I think that was more. <laughs> That would summarizes Buckley's take, which is I mean, still pretty bad. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, and I mean, he's he basically his form his, he had an America first isolationist foreign policy that was rooted in we shouldn't have gone to World War II. You know that that's that, that's a deep. It, I mean, th- those are the original America firsters, and you know, a number like Charles Lindbergh was an America firster. Before the war, but then when the war started, he saw he he actually you know uh, lied to get into the back into the military and and, and run bomber raids. And I'd say Charles Lindbergh was a great guy because he was a horrible person, but you know, in many many ways. But he at least did that. Uh, and you know Buchanan was resolute that this was you know, that we shouldn't have done it. Uh, now, so yeah. so so for those who are not kind of familiar with his oeuvre. Um, Pat's book, a couple, a couple of Pat's books essentially argue that um, World War One and World War Two both dis- destroyed like hundreds of millions of essentially white European Christians, and that's like the suicide of the West essentially. And Buchanan argued that um, that Hitler didn't want to go after America, didn't want to go after England, wanted to go after Russia. We should have left, this is Pat, we should have left them. We should have let those two beat each other up, take each other on. And basically that's his, that is his take. Um, And as you could imagine, that is a, that is a controversial (laughs) take to have. I mean, behind me, Bill, you, you can see it. The audience can't probably, but I've got Winston Churchill, you know, on my wall. Um, Pat Buchanan, not a big Winston Churchill fan, to give you an idea of of the kind of sort of contrarian iconoclast that that he is. Uh, and let's and let's also keep in mind, like his uh, his bigotry, I think, didn't just uh, arguably just, uh, reside with just Jews. You know, there's just some quotes here from back when he was running for president, nineteen ninety two. Early, this is late nineteen ninety one. Uh, quote, David Duke is busy stealing from me. I have a mind to go down there and sue that dude for intellectual property theft. Uh, 
I think God made all people good, but if we had to take in a million immigrants in, say, Zulus next year or Englishmen and put them in Virginia, which group would be easier to assimilate and would cause less problems to the people of Virginia? Uh, so, uh, you know, I, I think there's, there's a lot of problematic elements to, to Pat Buchanan. Uh, and, uh, but he represented a faction of the Republican Party back then. Uh, so he doesn't doesn't win the ninety two primary, but he he makes enough of, he he plants enough of a flag in it that George H W Bush says I got to give this guy a prime time convention address to keep the party unified, uh, and does the infamous culture war uh, address, which was uh, terrible politically in the short run at minimum, but I I remember. Uh, I was in college at the time in Ohio uh, and Sherrod Brown was running for Congress for the first time in my district. And the, the, the debate was actually on campus. I went to the debate. And I remember Sherrod Brown saying, uh, I was listening to the Republican convention in Berlin. I, I mean, Houston. Yeah. Was uh, it Molly, Molly Evans or someone said it was better in the original German. Right. Um, but look, I'll say this about Pat Buchanan. One of the things I like about him, unlike Donald Trump, not only is he a happy warrior, he's a writer and he like Donald Trump could ne- like that, that speech. And it's got a lot. If you listen to it today, I think there are parts of it that are inspiring, parts of it that are insightful and obviously parts of it that sound even worse today than they did. in they <laughs> you know what I mean? But um but he can speak. Pat Buchanan did poetry. Um, and Donald Trump can't do that, doesn't do that. And um, and I do think that there are parts of what Pat Buchanan was advocating that I rejected at the time, because even though I've always liked Pat Buchanan, um, I've always disagreed with him philosophically on, on a lot. Um, but if in hindsight, if we had co-opted, and this is what this this will this is very controversial, but Pat Buchanan wanted to co-opt some of the <laughs> some of the inoffensive parts of David Duke's program. Um, I would say if the Republican Party had done a better job of co-opting some of the economic populism points, like having to do with like NAFTA, for example. Uh, some of the the economic populism stuff that Pat Buchanan was talking about, if, if the Republican Party, and again, I was rejecting all of that at the time, but if we had done a better job of, of co-opting some of that and incorporating some of that, maybe, um, maybe Donald Trump doesn't come along. You know, may, may, well, maybe. He, I mean, he is the guy who did it. I mean, I mean Pat I Buchanan tried to do it and Donald Trump succeeded at it. Both of them had many horrible aspects to them. Uh, I mean, that's what, I mean, obviously you can academically say you can be protectionist and not be racist. The two things are, you know, intertwined. Um, yet they seem to come together very well for these two people uh, because they spoke to uh, a aversion to change uh, that had appeal to people who were uh, older, older and white. Um, 
So I, I I don't know who was the figure out there that was going to cleave that and just be economic populist and not bring in all the other all the other stuff. Well, I mean, um, someone like a like a Mike Huckabee or a, or a Rick Santorum, um, they would have had other sort of hangups too. But I think that they they wouldn't have been as bad as Trump, and they would. I mean, Rick Santorum when he ran for president in 2012 against Mitt Romney was really making a lot of hay out of the economic populism stuff. Remember he wanted to really favor manufacturing and the tax code and stuff like that. And he ended up winning Iowa. He didn't get a bump because they bought because Iowa can't count votes. They botched it. <laughs> but then Santorum wins Iowa. He goes to New Hampshire and he gets caught up in this debate with a student about gay marriage or something. Mm -hmm. And I think mm -hmm. that basically ended well, uh, the his, his mini, I mean, the mini boomlet. I mean, maybe I'm not aware of Santorum saying things that are explicitly racist. Maybe you didn't, I'm just I'm remembering them, but he always had animus uh, towards people who were heterosexual. Uh, and that also just also speak to that general appetite on the, on, on the far right for being resistant to cultural change. Uh, so all that stuff seems to, uh, on the right side of the fence when you talk about protectionism, that stuff seems to well, come together. Well, the other thing that's interesting is Pat Buchanan, you know, he's a graduate of Gonzaga, graduate of Georgetown, uh, pre-Vatican to whatever. He's a devout Catholic, okay? Mm -hmm. Rick Santorum, devout Catholic. Mike mm -hmm. Huckabee, Baptist, I think, preacher. Yeah, Baptist, yeah. Donald Trump, Vulgarian. <laughs> I think it's I think it is also not an accident. Now, Donald Trump was also famous. Um, so there's other differences. But I, I think that that Trump was able to actually win as a populist, partly because he was not. Religious, that wasn't really part of his thing. No, no, I think he, it helped him, ironically. I mean, he obviously found a way to get those people on board. They, they were not with him in the primary, and he got him in afterwards. But anyway, right, let's, let's go back to Bikanda. Uh, one of the things you, you, you're focusing on was that, I mean, he had an intelligence, and he had a wit, and he had a, he had a style. He was engaging. He was nice in person. You know, I think all those things... Because there was a controversy of while at some point where people were like, why is this guy still on TV? Why are we still allowing this guy to have a perch in the media when he said all these hateful things? There was a time when Rachel Maddow and Pappy Cannon were re regular sparring partners on MSNBC. That was like part of the end of it because my MSNBC viewers were like, why the hell are we listening to Pappy Cannon? But Maddow and well, Cannon was good TV. He was great TV. I, I mean, him and like Chris Matthews, for example. I love that. Now, young people look at that and they're so turned off by these two, these two kind of old guys uh, and they're, you know, old fashioned uh, mores um, and, and all that that entails, uh, good and bad. I like I like the happy warrior. I like the, the they, I'm sure Pat and Chris Matthews would go out and have a beer after they mm -hmm. did that occasionally. You know, I, I, maybe, I like maybe that. Maybe Rachel too. Yeah. And, 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 um, but what I think what did pad in at MSNBC, I think, is here's my guess. I don't I have no inside information, but I think Phil Griffin told him probably, do not write this book. 
Pat was going to write like another book, Suicide of the West, or I don't even know which one it was. Um, but but the book, I think it was the book. And the book was a, had to do with the decline of white America, the decline of whites, uh, the decline of Christians um, and Western civilization, you know, like, and I, I believe that is what did him in. But my guess is he was warned. Like, we'd like to keep you here. Just don't do this. Don't write the book. That's my, that was my, right. that's kind of my hunch. And he did it. Um, but it, it, like, to my mind, Buchanan is a reminder that being college educated, being intelligent, being knowledgeable about history, being an engaging speaker, uh, being thoughtful, uh, doesn't automatically mean that you have decent ideas. You can still have very hateful, divisive, corrosive ideas that have all these other positive qualities. Uh, and I think because Buchanan was probably a fun guy to be around and was good was good TV, like knew all these knew all the pundits and knew all the editors. Um, he was their friend. Uh, so sort of easy to be like, oh, that's, yeah, you know, Pat thinks we shouldn't have fought Hitler. Oh, Pat. <laughs> Silly Pat. <laughs> Pat doesn't want black people to be immigrants. Oh, that's crazy Pat. Uh, and uh, and so he was able to hang around for a very long time. Uh, uh, and, maybe, and obviously you could argue that, well, why shouldn't it be? Because he represents a viewpoint and you should be able to battle that viewpoint out in public. And doesn't mean that he's right, but, you know, we we live in a world where people have horrible ideas and they should be aired out and engaged. So you can, you can make that justification too. Um, well, especially, in the Trump, especially in the Trump era. I mean, as it's ironic that, that Pat's voice as a commentator kind of receded at the time Trump was kind of coming on the scene, because again, you could really argue that Pat laid the groundwork, you know, intellectually, philosophically for that, that, Trump finally was able to win the nomination on. Well, this is sort of another question we assessing Pat Buchanan's legacy. It's obviously easy to say that Pat Buchanan ran on things that Trump also ran on and succeeded with. Therefore, Pat Buchanan is the precursor to Trump. Uh, I don't think it definitively proves the point that you needed Buchanan to get to Trump. Um, uh, I, I don't know how to adjudicate it, you know, myself. When, when Pat Buchanan did it, he did not do well electorally. <laughs> you know, he he basically had uh, he had a halfway decent showing in one primary in 1992 to uh, make George H.W. Bush, you know, knock back on his heels. He won New Hampshire in 96, but petered out after that. Uh, when he ran as the Reform Party candidate in 2000, he was a non-factor. Um, uh, and then he went back to being a pundit again. Uh, so did that really stoke the appetite for right-wing populism? Uh, or did it just really go very dormant for 16 years after that? Uh, and... Trump, who wasn't even running as a right-wing populist in 2000 when yeah. he had his, his, his half-baked presidential campaign, was trying to run much more as a centrist. 
uh, was embracing single payer healthcare at the time. Um, yeah. Uh, was think, there just? I, think, I mean, I think Pat was just ahead of his time. So what happened is, I think Pat, by winning New Hampshire in '96, by by giving Bush a run for his money in '92, demonstrated that there was a uh, a strain on the right in the Republican Party, a <clears throat> a minority, but but a growing strain um, that was populist, that was nationalist. That, but but see, you got to realize. <clears throat> When Pat's running and he's complaining about like NAFTA, the effects of NAFTA hadn't fully kicked in. The effects of globalization hadn't fully kicked in. He's at the front end of this, warning about it, just like Ross Perot, another sign, I think, of what was to come. They're warning about what's going to happen. But then you've got, you know, I think you need to have 9-11 happen. I think you need to have the, the Great Recession happen. I think you need to have... Also, so so basically, it well, right. Well, maybe you know, Obama happened. I mean, Obama was obviously pushing things culturally, yeah. uh, <clears throat> more more so in the second term than the first in terms of immigration and gun control, um, uh, and 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 he was pushing free, you know, the um, TPP trade agreement along with that. So again, the cultural progressivism and the economic globalization happening at the same time yeah. with Obama, Trump's able then, to then light that match. Yeah. And then the other thing that happens is the reordering. So I think that like Pat Buchanan was trying to win a Republican Party primary full of Republicans. By the time Trump comes along, I think there were a lot of a lot more white kind of working class Democrats who had left the Democratic Party in those 16 years since Pat left the the political scene and they'd come over into the Republican Party. And so I think that's part of the reason why Trump not being religious actually benefited him as opposed to someone like Santorum. So I think that the reordering helped as well. There were a lot of these kind of working class, Roseanne Barr, Michael Moore kind of people who voted for Trump, but they weren't eligible to vote for Pat Buchanan. And they would have been turned off by his religiosity in any of that. Um. So made a segue into 2024. Uh, I think it's still a bit of an open question to what extent the Buchanan ideology is the basis of the current Republican Party. To what extent did Trump win in the first place based on that mix of policy ideas? And to what extent was it just his own celebrity uh uh and to what extent that the issues matter how much it was just the the more bigoted cultural stuff and how much it was the economic stuff so this is coming to a bit of a head now because trump is telling the current group of congressional republicans don't cut social security and medicare don't make that a central focus point of your negotiations with biden over raising the debt ceiling and keeping the government open um uh, now it's a bit murky to what extent Republicans want to do this anyway, because McCarthy is not saying it. Um, you know, I just wrote about this for the Washington Monthly. Um, so you do have a large faction of the 
House Republican Conference called the Republican Study Committee. In fact, they make up three quarters of the conference. Although we, as sometimes with these things, people sign a paper, I'm in this conference, I'm in, I'm in this caucus. Doesn't mean they sign on every aspect of the platform, you know. But there is an RSC budget that calls for, you know, they don't they don't like to say cuts. They'll say we want to reform the program for future retirees, tweak these formats, but obviously amounts to benefit cuts uh, relative to what they would be otherwise. Uh, and they also talk about privatization of Social Security. They talk about um, higher Medicare premiums for higher income beneficiaries, which is obviously a means test kind of cut. Um, uh, so the and and so certain members of the of the Republican Study Committee have said we should be talking about these things now. Others have been more coy or um, or saying, well, this is not really the time to talk about it at this moment. Uh, so, but Trump dives in to this intra-party discussion because there isn't a, a consensus view of what the Republican Party is actually asking for right now. Trump barrels in and says, don't cut Social Security and Medicare. I'm going to stake my claim there, make a kind of video about it, and make, make that really a part of, he's, he's a candidate now, he's running for president. He's saying, this is part of my platform. All you old white people, you know, he doesn't say it like this, all you old white people, who like it for these reasons, you know, I'm never going to mess your social security the way these other bastards want to do it. Um, you, Buchanan never made a, I don't think Buchanan ever took that stance. Um, but it is sort of along the lines of being an economic populist. Uh, so I don't know how you feel. If you think Trump is doing a smart play because that is the is it important for Republicans to take that off the table because Republicans don't want it. And Henry Olson has written about this recently that the polls show that Republican voters don't want this conservative voters don't want this. Uh, or is that not really the thing that animates Republicans these days? Well, I think it's axiomatic that cutting social security and entitlements are not popular. Um, but I would say this, if Republicans are not going to cut entitlements and they're not going to cut the defense budget, then they're not going to fix, <laughs> then they're just not going to fix our problem because it's not going to happen with waste, fraud and abuse. It's just not. Um, and so that is the question. Like, do they really, is, is this really, is the debt problem, uh, we have to tackle it before it tackles us or whatever, Paul Ryan. You're like, is it that, is it that important all of a sudden? Well, the, well, well, um, well I think that's, well, I think that, that that's sort of the bigger question. Do we actually have a debt problem? That's a, that's acute and urgent. We know that the debt is very high right now. That's more than hundred percent of GDP, which is historically high, not the highest of all of world history, but high. Um, does that create immediate problems that have to be solved in a dramatic, abrupt, and draconian fashion or not? Or can you gradually reduce your debt load over the course of several decades? Um, but I think either way, regardless really of, but I would say either way, even, even if you just want to reduce it, if you're taking like entitlements off the table and defense spending off the table, you're not going to do it. This is not going to happen. And so we're not to the point yet as a nation where we have decided things, we can't go on like this forever. We have to make some dramatic change. 
Um, and we need to, I look so personally, I think we do need to do entitlement reform, unlike Donald Trump, but it is going to be politically unpopular. And that's just the way it is. Um, but if you're not going to do that, if you're not going to go, if you're not going to cut any social security at all, if you're not going to do means testing, um, you're not going to raise the age of retirement, whatever, which I don't think are really radical ideas personally, but can't do it. Hands off. Right. Not popular. Not going to debt. You're not going to do that. <laughs> and I don't think we should be cutting defense spending. Then you're not going to solve the problem. And so that's where we are. I think this is an exercise in futility. And um, but I do think it could be serious. Ramesh Panuru has a column. He's a, a newly minted Washington Post columnist. Uh, a column in the Washington Post um, where he talks about why this standoff could be maybe more dangerous than past standoffs. And it's basically because Democrats think that um, Obama made a mistake negotiating with hostages at all, giving them any ground that that we should the Democrats should establish the premise that we do not negotiate over raising the debt ceiling because uh, it, it is a dangerous thing to establish that uh, the premise. So if Democrats kind of hold their ground that we will we are not going to deal with these people and Republicans simultaneously convince themselves that you know, hey, it's up to the Democrats if they want to destroy the economy or not. Like if both sides are now dug in, which they may be, it could it could get ugly. Well, let's there's there's a, there's a couple of big things I want to address there. Um first quickly I want to say that on Social Security and Medicare, there are some relatively immediate problems to solve, just objectively speaking. You know, there, you know the Social Security uh, Medicare trustees put out an annual report. They talk about when will the trust funds become insolvent. Um, and for Social Security, that's in 10 years, and Medicare, that's in three years. And for Medicare, it's not all of Medicare, it's the hospital insurance trust fund, because the other, other parts are... are uh, more handle with you know immediate tax revenue. Now you know the payroll the payroll tax is always coming in to fund these things, but you know money's coming in, money's coming out. You know is there a mismatch in the in the cash flow? So as it stands, Social Security will the trust fund would deplete in ten years. Payroll tax still come in, so you could pay something. You couldn't pay everything, uh, and Medicare depletes in three years. Now, so you got to do something to extend solvency. But that doesn't mean you have to totally overhaul the program. It doesn't mean you have to do privatization. You have to do objective retirement age. You know, it's a question of revenue and payment. So you can raise the taxes. You know, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren have a proposal that expands benefits while extending solvency by seventy-two by for seventy-five years because they jack up the the payroll tax. There's a cap on the payroll tax after. $250,000, you don't pay payroll tax, they eliminate that. Uh, and they add other taxes too. So there's point is there's multiple ways you can extend solvency. It doesn't require uh, changing the fundamental nature of the program. Uh, but you would to address it in a non-ideological way requires both sides to you know, sort of put down their swords. Because right now, Demo if Republicans push dramatic reforms, Democrats can beat them inside the head and they win that argument every single time. <laughs> so there's no incentive on their part to say, well, let's talk about ways we can do this more calmly. 
but there's only so much time. Like they, they will eventually have to get to that point. And you can't, Social Security, you can't do through reconciliation because it's by law. So they have to do this in a bipartisan way eventually. Yeah. Probably not this year, but eventually. Uh, so that, that, that one point. Yeah. At some to, point, it will, re- at some point, it will require um, raising taxes and raising the retirement age and means testing. Um, well, I, wouldn't, like I, wouldn't, I wouldn't assume that, but that, that is one way to do it. And, and maybe you can do some of those things in kind of a light way. So you can do some of the tax things in a light way and everyone kind of, it, 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 it hurts a little bit on all sides, but it doesn't, again, totally change the nature of the program. I mean, there's already a degree of means testing as it is. I mean, there's, there's already redistributed elements to it. So it's, it's a question of degree. Um, anyway, to the other point about the history of the debt limit fight, I just want to re- refresh the Obama history here. You know, Tea Party happens in 2010. Republicans take over the House. Big budget negotiations occur. And to avoid the debt limit issue, a debt limit breach, they come up with the with the super committee. The super committee was going to be it's big bipartisan committee to figure out how to reduce the deficit in a bipartisan way. And they had a backstop, which is if we, if we can't come to an agreement, then the sequester kicks in. There's automatic, brutal cuts, defense, non-defense, not entitlements, but defense, non-defense. Uh, and they'll be, they'll be so abrupt and painful, it'll be an incentive to come to a more reasonable agreement. They don't come to a reasonable agreement. The sequester does kick in. And then in the next debt limit fight, where Obama does say, I'm not negotiating this again. You are going to do a clean debt limit. Uh, and they were trying to like defund Planned Parenthood and defund Obamacare. This is 2013. Uh, and in that fight, the Republicans lose completely. Uh, and Obama does hold the line and they loosen the sequester along the way. Um, so in a bipartisan way. So I don't think it's right to say Obama has taught Democrats bad lessons. They end on a good lesson. You can hold the line here uh, because Republicans will, if they're forcing other issues onto this, you know, one bit of basic governmental maintenance, they're going to look like the jerks and they'll and they'll cave. So that's kind of where Biden's trying to be right now. And where I think right now the but debate is getting be- a little... That lesson could be dangerous. I think Democrats learned that Republicans are going to be blamed for this if they do it, because it'll be their fault. Um, and I think Republicans have convinced themselves, like, we can't back down. We can't blank. Mm-hmm. And, and I mean, John Boehner's not there. You know, it's a yeah. different Republican Party now, Bill. So that's why I think oh, I, is Ramesh, Ramesh Panura's argument that this is a little more dangerous than you might think. Oh, I, I, I agree is, with that. No. I, I, I am definitely less trusting that the, that they can land the plane because I don't I don't trust Kevin McCarthy to have the spine to do it. And you can get around McCarthy with a, with a discharge petition, which Democrats are already talking about, which is a way to force a bill on the floor. Uh, but there's a lot of, there's a lot of procedural hurdles to that. You can't do it in a day. It requires several months. So you basically have to like draft the clean debt ceiling hike now 
so it exists and start collecting signatures for it. Um, and even the moderate Republicans saying, look, we don't want a debt limit breach, but we're going to have to do some kind of deficit reduction here. Like they can't negotiate that on the front end. They got to write the bill now clean and hopefully that they would get to some kind of side agreement, you know, down the line. So it's complicated and, and oh, yeah. perfectly legitimate to be worried that they can't pull it off. Uh, and I think what's, what's also, I think, you know, I, I hear Manchin, you know, Biden saying we're not, we don't, we're not going to negotiate. Manchin, Manchin saying, well, you have to negotiate. What's confusing is that they have to pass appropriations bills, either individually or together in an omnibus or doing things on autopilot with a continuing resolution. They got to do one of those three things by September 30th. So, yeah, they have to negotiate. Like, they literally have to negotiate. Like, there's, there's no way to do it unilaterally. Republicans control the House. The House and Senate and Biden have to agree on something to fund the government by September 30th. But the debt limit needs to be resolved before then. That needs to be resolved probably by June. So the question is not do you have to negotiate. The question is do you have to negotiate about the debt limit? <laughs> do you have to conflate the two things? Like Biden and McCarthy can negotiate budget stuff right now if they can rhetorically agree this is not about the debt limit. And even, right now, most Republicans are saying, yeah, we know we got to increase the debt limit. I've only seen lately... Bob, I think it's Bob Good. I think it was Good. who was like, I don't want to raise the debt limit. I'm not sure anyone else has actually said, gone that far publicly. Marjorie, Taylor, the- Marjorie Taylor Green. Oh, she she okay. said that too? Okay. So, um, look, if you... She said she wouldn't vote. She, she actually said she wouldn't sign a clean debt. Uh, well, Clint, that's raising. different. That's different. That's- I mean, saying you, saying you don't want to clean is different than saying you don't want to do it at all. Yeah. And, like, Good is saying he doesn't want to do it. Um, so oh, okay, that's, right. that is different. Um, that's I mean, maybe maybe he would do it if there was uh, a not, if there was a dramatic budget agreement that he would approve on. But he was basically saying, I'm I don't think it's my important. credit card bills anymore either. I'm right. refusing to pay my credit card bills. I think so we are uh, uh, we are at the just checking in with you here. We're at the. I apologize for spending 15 minutes on White Lotus, but we are now <laughs> we are now we are now at the 54 minute mark. Uh, just to give you a sense of uh, landing this plane. Okay. Okay. Well, we can, we can wrap up soon. Um, but my, my, one thing I want to say is I think enough Republicans have said, yeah, I know we got to raise the debt limit to suggest the Democrats, they're not going to shoot this hostage. Um, and they can say to Republicans, look, I know we got to negotiate a budget agreement because we're going to hit that deadline in September. So like, look, if you want to, you're going to probably get some kind of pound of flesh out of this. Um, just don't make it about the debt limit. <laughs> Let's just take that off the table. You still have, you still have leverage in the budget talks because you control the house. <laughs> so you don't, you don't need the debt limit to like, to try to cut something here or there. We'll probably cut something. It's not going to be cutting off our arms and legs, but we're going to have to cut something because you have some votes here. So, that that's where I think they could get to landing the plane, but it's the sequencing of all that that's complicated because obviously the the deal looming over you puts everybody on edge and and the question is who does it hurt more H- having the debt limits over here who does it hurt more does it hurt Democrats because ah we don't want to have the global economy blow up on our watch or does it hurt Republicans more because they'll get blamed for that by being by being jerks 
So perhaps Biden and McCarthy could say, look, this really doesn't help any of us, this delimit stuff. Let's get that off the table. And look, we'll, we'll have a knockdown drag out by, by September. I guarantee you, you'll probably get something out of us from it. All right. Well, I apologize. Uh, multiple topics we did not get to, but I think we covered some good stuff. And well, no, uh, anything very, 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 very quickly. We won't, won't, won't do 20 minutes on it. But what do you think about Nikki Haley inching into the 2024 race? You know, we, we talked last week that they all seem scared. No one wants to go first and take Trump's wrath. There was an article saying there's some talk about a bunch of people entering at the same time. So he can't he can't hit us all at once. Um Hold hands and jump. <clears throat> do you think, do you think um, Haley is doing a smart thing by inching forward now? I have these sort of two opposing viewpoints on Nikki Haley. On one hand, I saw her on Fox News with a special report with Brett Baer. She's so charming, so likable, um, very talented politician. And on the other hand, I just can't get past the fact that she's such a phony <laughs> and she criticizes Trump and then kisses his butt and then criticizes Trump. She said she wouldn't run against Trump. She said she wouldn't run. And now she has to like, my guess is that she has alienated almost everybody. If you're a diehard MAGA person, Nikki Haley's not your cup of tea. <clears throat> and if you don't like Trump, how can you trust her? Because she is sucked up to him so many times publicly and she's just going back and forth. So it's like, if you try to be everything to everybody, you end up standing for nothing. And so on one hand, I feel like she's this very charming, talented, smart, attractive, I'll say it, um, politician. And on the other hand, I don't think we could trust her. And I feel like she's probably alienated so many of us. That's where I am. So I, I don't know. <clears throat> the other candy making a move is Pompeo with his book out and the news out of the book. It's just two, just two bits of news that I've seen. One is that he says that Jared Kushner, and I think Ivanka also were pushing to get Nikki Haley on the ticket and bump yeah. off Pence. And Haley said, well, I didn't do it. That wasn't me, which doesn't quite negate that Jared and Ivanka want to do it. And then his very glib uh, recounting of the uh, Khashoggi murder by the Saudi regime um, where he basically defends uh, the Trump policy uh, in maintaining uh, ties to the Saudis. Uh, some quotes from the book are, uh, what made the media matter than a vegan in a slaughterhouse is our relationship with Saudi Arabia. Um, uh, he called Khashoggi an activist, only a journalist to the extent that I and many other public figures are journalists. We sometimes get our writing published, but we also do other things. He said he was cozy with the terrorist-supporting Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, and he said about Trump, in some ways, and the president was envious that I was the one who gave the middle finger to the Washington Post, the New York Times, and the other bedwetters who didn't have a grip on reality. Um, uh, so and the, the Washington Post had a very uh, uh, harsh statement in response to that. And then Pompeo responded to the Washington Post on Twitter saying, Americans are safer because we didn't label Saudi Arabia a pariah state. I never let the media bully me. Just because someone is a part-time stringer for the Washington Post doesn't make their life more important than our military serving in dangerous places and protecting us all. 
I never forgot that. And you know, I, I responded myself on Twitter. This doesn't seem like a guy who thinks all life is the sanctity of life, which is something he's talked about in the abortion context. This is being very, very glib about a human being's life, regardless just, of whatever. I mean, Bill, you know, I'm a, a conservative person and, and philosophy, but like, I just don't see how we can trust these people. I can't trust Pompeii, Pompeo, Pompeo. 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 I can. I have a weird thing trying to remember that guy's name. I can't trust him. I don't know. I don't know what he stands for. Uh, I, I can't trust Nikki Haley. Find her charismatic. Don't trust her. Some of these people are just very weird, uh, and they've been. Um, I don't know whether Trump revealed their character and exposed it, or or what, but, um, but I think that they lack that sort of dignity that one needs. I do think that uh, DeSantis and Youngkin, and I, I know DeSantis did that really um, despicable TV ad sucking up to Trump, but I think because DeSantis and, uh, and Youngkin were from sort of a different generation, they came on the scene around, you know, I mean, DeSantis was a congressman in the Tea Party, but nobody ever heard of him. I mean, they, they essentially became national figures after Trump was president. Mm-hmm. And they were governors, you know, they weren't in the chain of command. So I, I think that 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 DeSantis and, and Youngkin, for example, um, were not humiliated and, and exposed the way that like Ted Cruz and Nikki Haley and Mike Pence even and Pompeo have been. So I just don't think anybody from the Trump orbit like that, that DC, and the funny thing about Nikki Haley, Bill, is she managed to survive amazing, like miraculously, maybe because she was in New York, she managed to survive working for Trump and only to get sucked in afterwards. That was the bizarre thing. She made it out. And then she decided, I'm going to destroy my career. Um, she had walked this amazing fine line that was super impressive and then effed it up retroactively. So um, I, I think that whoever is the next Republican, my, my guess is they will not be somebody who ran against him in 2016 or worked for him in his administration. That's my that's my sense. I mean, that's a, it's a pretty safe bet. It's very rare for... <clears throat> people with a Washington base uh, administ- administration officials, very rare for those people like that to get, to get nominated. Um, all right. Well, we should, we should leave it on that note, I think. Yeah. Good talk, Bill. As always, anything you need to plug? I can share the piece I read about Social Security, Medicare, and Trump for the Washington Monthly. Uh, otherwise, uh, I think I'm good. I had a really um, weird but interesting conversation with Cliff Blazinski, who is a um, 25-year veteran of the video game industry and a very prominent um, video game designer. And we talked a lot about politics, actually, things like Gamergate, things like uh, whether video games inspire mass shootings, things like screen time and addiction of video games. So, um, it's not a normal podcast, but check it out at Matt Lewis and the News if that is your sort of thing. All righty. All right. Uh, we'll, see, we'll see you back in the DMZ next week. You got it. Have a good one, man. <laughs>